0: to be manufactured by the system, the system, the system, the system of oppression, the symbolism of status is a construct of fabrication, a mass plantation, unreal becomes real if you allow it, symbolic capital producing social capital, consume, 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 consume you, consume me, eat what diapressors feed you until you regurgitate it, puke, rebuke, cleanse yourselves, the perils of the world by the power vested in me. I command D, to henceforth be free, social mobility, bye bye, black sheep, y'all is asleep, weeping while they reaping, uphold your dignity, versatility. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining the MORE podcast. And today we have a special guest lecturer that's going to be joining us, Dr. A.S. Zoya. Anam Zoya, excuse me. Um, thank you for joining us on the MORE podcast. And I just wanted to talk to you about a little bit more about what you're doing in the Ghana community, um, locally, and tell us a little bit more about what's going on at the University of Ghana.
1: Okay, so thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> I teach at the University of Ghana, Sociology Department. I've been here for the past um, 15 years um, teaching. At the moment, um, the universities in Ghana, I mean, the public investors in Ghana, are not working because um, for the past now one month we are on strike. Um, So for now, we're not working. Not working here means we are not teaching, but we still conduct research. We still um, read, we still write articles. We still um, supervise, um, examine theses. I just got one from Kean University to examine this morning. So what we have decided to do is to suspend teaching, but we keep active our um, other aspects of academic life.
0: Okay, and can you tell us more about as to why it is that you guys have decided to go on strike?
1: Yes, we have, this is our first time, last year by, I think, uh, November, December, we um, went on strike. But we were convinced to come back to the lecture hall because the government was going to um, listen to our side of the story, and so we, we came back. Um, we have um, leadership, and so they others who are negotiating the government about um, our um, situation. We are looking for an increment in what we call the book and the social allowances. Um, the government gives us about uh, 500 cities and $1,500 every year for the book and the social allowance, and we feel that. Um, as an academic we spend so much money to uh, conduct research and uh, we think that the amount of money given by the government is basically um, not enough and therefore we have been crying for an increase in this uh, particular aspect over the past uh, i think seven years from not mistake or more and so we feel that um, the economy of the country seven or more years ago is not the same as today, and even if it were, uh, a lot of changes have occurred. Uh, a lot of, uh, if you like, enhancement in salaries have occurred, and so we also feel that the book allowances of, uh, should be. Uh, enhanced of course, if and we do buy books if, you, if uh, the books prices keep going up but um, the, the, the allowances for us are uh, still stagnant and so we feel that um, we need to in- remind the government about the need for us to have uh, um, an- an enhanced um, recession book allowances. Secondly, we also feel that our music salary is quite inadequate um we feel that um as somebody who has schooled and gotten phd needs to um, needs to be adequately if you like compensated and so we were looking at first uh, level entry point of a a young lecturer somebody with a phd we are kind of advocating for uh, amount of money which basically uh, is a bit substantial, convincing enough to attract faculty, young faculty across the world to um, join the academia. And so that's one. We're also looking at an increase in existing salary, not just the entry point. It's not only about those who are coming in fresh, but also with those who are here. We are at different levels. You you have lecturers and senior lecturers, associate professors and professors. The differences amongst these previous categories are quite um, negligible. And so, one, we should have an enhanced level for all these levels of lecturers. And and, uh, (coughs) we we are hoping that that would be. Also, a motivation for people to want to become uh, get promotion, for instance, to move from being senior lecturer to being an associate professor to being a full professor. So all these things are our um, concerned. And um, so the government, through the minister of finance and the minister minister for education, uh, they have been negotiating with um, our mm-hmm. leadership terms of how they are going to go about uh, meeting us, our demands and uh, showing that we come back to the lecture hall.
0: Wow, thank you for that. And how do you feel that the government is sending out a message to the people of Ghana that they don't care so much about the Ghanaian intellectuals? What do you think that does for the students?
1: In the first place, um, let me place on record that what is surprising to lecturers is that the current government, as an MPP government, is a government of intellectuals. So we are hoping that the government would, um, uh, if you like, pay more attention to the demands of the academic community. Um, the NDC party now in opposition, which was in government some years ago, was considered to be a government that does not pay attention to intellectuals, that does not um, respect um, elites. So the expectation is that this government of uh, NPP, which is uh, compared to NDC, an elite party, if you like, or a past that believes in uh, intellectuals that are in academia, that in the of, um, you know, development of the academic um, uh, academics in, in the country. So it is a bit surprising that um, the government of the day is still not responding to our demands. Because the expectation was that as a government that believes in democracy, that believes in academic freedom, that believes in intellectual development of the country, um, lecturers would have been uh, of um, prime concern to such a a government. So we are hoping that the government was to um, quickly look into the matter and uh, resolve it uh, smoothly and amicably. However, uh, the, the perception out there is that. Lecturers might not be respected that much in the Ghanaian society, and, um, and that if it wasn't the case by now, the government would have come quickly to the table and then, um, and, um, if you like, uh, responded to the few points we have raised in connection with our conditions of service conditions that have been there for the past uh, almost 10 years, conditions that have uh, not favored uh, uh, new entrance to the academic um, um, the university's life, and the conditions that um, we hope would be improved, at least for, for the betterment of, of, uh, of lecturers. We also recently were not quite um, when I say we, I mean, the academic community was quite unhappy when the salaries of some category of public servants were increased um, that much, whereas that of the middle-level civil servants like lecturers um, wasn't part of any significant, any um, substantial uh, increment. So, um, we have those article ones, Article Seventy-One office holders, that is the president, the vice president, ministers, uh, and deputy ministers, and all of that. So, I think that also kind of, if you like, um, aroused the the interest of Ghanaians in the academia about how how much people are taking out there and how much we are taking and um, and, and, and a feeling of um, disadvantage, a feeling of um, neglect if, if there's so much increment in some people's salaries um, and yet there's so little in that of um, academics. So the question is, aren't we that important to, to the Ghanaian society? are we not part of um, the national development agenda aren't we doing our part to promote um, development of the country so that, that was something that aided in uh, if you like in putting additional pressure on the government mm-hmm. to to the, the plea of the, of, of the legislatures. Yeah.
0: And how do you see this impacting the future of Ghana and specifically with thinking about the young minds of Ghana and students, student leaders?
1: Well, um, most Ghanaians most young minds, those in academia, those in the, mm. those in the universities and colleges of course I don't know how much we take home as lecturers and um, it doesn't promote or motivate anybody who to be, want to be in academia to want to be a lecturer they also see how the politicians if you like how they their lifestyles are quite um, good they see people who are in politics and how they the life they live, the kind of cars they drive, the kind of houses they live in, and um, their general well-being. So, the mind of the other Ghanaian would be more towards um, being a politician, respecting politicians. It matters matter how the politician makes his money. What matters is the fact that he has money or she has money. That can also, I remember a student told me that she was attending, a friend was attending a meeting of a political party organization on campus and the friend asked hey, won't you go for lectures? And she said, well I can still go for lectures and complete the university, but so even getting a job can be a problem but if I am able to attend this meeting where it is a meeting of a political party branch on campus um, I may be lucky to That uh, before I complete the university, I might have a job somewhere. Not because of the course I might have done at the university, but because I am associated with uh, an association on campus that is a branch of a political party that might be on uh, power or that might have power uh, and all that. Wow!
0: So it sounds like. You talked a little bit about the economy. It sounds like that the economy of Ghana is a huge concern and issue for a lot of local Ghanaians. So can you speak more about how you've seen the Ghanaian economy change over the course of time of you living here?
1: Um, A lot has changed. I came to when I started in 2005 as a lecturer. um, A lot of things have changed. Let me just start from, um, because you understand that we have different governments who have different ideologies in terms of uh, what they want to do with the the power that they get. So we have two types of uh, main parties in the country. The NPP has a new political party and NDC, National Democratic uh, Congress. Now, the NPP appears to want to align with the liberal uh, democracy, uh, the free free market economy. Um, And the NDC happens to be comfortable with the idea of statism, the state-leading development, or the idea of um, um allowing stifling the market because it is an offshoot of uh, i mean to the government if you like that's n d c from p n d c so it started with um trying to nationalize the economy, trying to cut off the international community, trying to maintain indigenous mm-hmm. development but um Things did not work out the way it was expected, so it had to go back to the Western, Western uh, donors for, for assistance. Mm. So these two parties and their orientations kind of, um, if you like, guide how they approach development. However, I must say that, and, and therefore how they manage the economy. But I must say that over the past um, 10 years or more, you hardly find the ideology in practice when these parties are in power. All you see is their development policies in terms of infrastructure development. All you see is uh, their, first of all their campaign promise, what they intend to do, and when they are in power, how they try to achieve what they had earlier promised. But you hardly find the parties taking to purely. Um, liberalism, for instance, and allowing each individual to fend for himself or for himself without uh, intervening. Surprisingly, MPP was like um, uh, a capitalist party or a party that lends credence or that has a kind of relation to um, uh, liberal economics. Such a party can still come in to provide social intervention, uh, provide, let's say, um, uh, facing senior high school, if you like, um, provide interventions that are very core to the individual of the country. But, so, because of that, you don't have a clear as a Ghanaian. You don't find differences when it's either this party or that party. You can't find difference in the economy. You can't find difference in your well-being. You can't find difference in, 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 in social-economic development because of the kind of party in power. You can't find differences in the lives of people, how they feel when it is either MPP in power or NDC in power. So the economy is basically um, the same. They, each of them, when in power, you know, plays with the international community for funding, it goes to IMF, goes it goes to World Bank, it goes to other donor agencies and, and seek funding. And you don't find that rigid kind of a path that can say, to help with IMF, we don't believe in your know, policies that can help in development. You, you don't have that strictly in, in the Ghanaian uh, political situation. Mm-hmm. And um, as
0: someone that's in the agricultural business, how has it impacted and how has it impacted that sector, but also how has Western influence impacted the agricultural sector in Ghana as well?
1: Again, um, Mm -hmm. apart from um, going to um, Brazil for instance, uh, and uh, learning from the agriculture and sometimes getting equipment and machinery from from Brazil. we as a country would usually not have a particular country that we can say this country has an impact or made an impact on our agricultural productivity. Uh, I mean, we, it's not that very clear. I mean, we, we learn from few places like Brazil, sometimes I think um, India also. In terms of machinery equipment. Recently, um, I think corn shareless China, but it has been Brazil and India when it comes to tractors and uh, other equipment for agricultural activities. Tractors, combined harvesters, corn shareless, multiple threshers. Yeah, but you don't have, you, you, you can't pinpoint it to say it is in the US or the UK or China. Or or Japan or Germany or Brazil or Singapore that has brought in a particular policy to assist the Ghanaian economy in terms of the agricultural aspect. It's, it's not very. Um, the ordinary Ghanaian doesn't see it. That's where I'm, I'm speaking from. The ordinary okay. Ghanaian, whether he's a medical doctor, whether he's an engineer, whether he's um, or an ordinary farmer or a lecturer, does not see. How a particular um, country in the world, consciously, with the, with assistance, with, with, with assistance of, of, of the current government, brings in a particular idea or technology that profoundly, you know, impacts on the agricultural sector. Which is visible that we can see results and say, yes, it was because of this particular policy brought in by this country. That resulted in this particular product or this particular uh, benefit is is difficult to to, to 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 pinpoint. So to the ordinary Ghanaian, whoever the ordinary Ghanaian is, either in the market or in the on, on the street or in the middle level uh, bureaucracy, you go to market, you buy your, your 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 products, and your concern is more about how much the prices are increasing. Mm-hmm. On a daily basis or on a weekly basis, right. and not about whether um, this f- these farm pro- products is uh, the result of a particular you know, policy. The government itself has policies that guide these uh, cultural activities, but the Oblak doesn't seem to know that. Okay, it is because of uh, the a policy directing that is resulting in a particular benefit that. Me as a Ghanaian, I'm, I'm, I'm benefiting from. The... Oh,
0: okay. um, the only reason why I ask is because I've talked to a few people in Ghana that's discussed the importation of certain like seeds and products that may come in, and it's more chemicalized than the local organic version, and how that raises a concern not only on the economic level but on the, the health level of local Ghanaians.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as for import of food, talk about rice. We import rice from Thailand, from the US, from China, because we are unable to produce enough to, to, to feed the, the local market. So, but again, it is it is in the market. It's not government policy to 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 to, to bring in uh, food items or other rice or beans or um, oil from any country. It is the market that determines it. The market finds that the Ghanaian farmer is unable to farm enough to feed the Ghanaian consumer. Therefore, he goes or she goes out there whether he goes to the US or he goes to Thailand or he goes to China or he goes to um, 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 uh, Brazil and brings in food as a, a business person and sells to the Ghanaian consumer and the Ghanaian consumer um would buy the foodstuff not because it's a government policy that to bring in more food, but because there's a shortfall in the market and the businessmen take advantage of that shortfall and then they okay. see an opportunity and then they bring in the foodstuff.
0: Hmm.
1: As for the health implications, um, there could be a lot. The ordinary Ghanaian may be unable to tell you about the health implications because. Um, when you eat perfume rice, for instance, you have no idea what um, chemicals are used to keep um, to keep the rice you know, in good condition for so many years before mm-hmm. it, it got to um, Africa from the uh, European farmer. We are told that sometimes they store this uh, this for, for many years and then they, before it gets to it, it, it goes to Ghana or it gets to Africa. So we do not, as ordinary Ghanaians, understand the health implications. But we know there could be health implications. Mm. Yes, we know, but we can't determine whether it's in, in the. I mean, any form even in the vegetables. We know that those who cultivated in Ghana here, they use chemicals. Mm. Yes, they use. Uh, we, we decide. They use uh, pesticide. To control weeds and pests in their farms, but we cannot tell the implication of that—you know—the health implication mm-hmm. of those chemicals uh, that we I mean, on, on on the Ghanaian. The same as even the serious maize, uh, glum, I mean, uh, so, soya beans and, and other stuff, right. rice, for example. We all use chemicals to to spray uh, our farms, but then the vegetables are where the danger is because you. They harvest it quickly, so the question is: by the time before the before the harvest, how long has been the application of the of the chemical or the weedicide? So the time between application and harvest is always a problem, but we have no idea as consumers. All that we know is that the farmers use chemicals, but as to whether the time of harvesting was good enough to allow the chemical potency to have d- diminished or not, we will have no idea. The same as the oh. international community. We don't know how they apply the chemicals, what time frame chemicals were applied before they harvested and how, when it comes to Ghana, we are now mm-hmm. consuming these things. We have no idea about all these things. But we, so but in our minds, we discuss it. People discuss it. Okay, the food that we are eating, sometimes I'm sure of the health implications, but we still eat those foods. Yeah. Wow, okay. Because I can also, also mention that we haven't had a situation where... We can say, okay, so this lady got this particular disease because she ate rice that came from China. And in China, we know that that particular rice was uh, harvested when they had just applied some particular chemical. And that's why there's no link to, no no health implications to any food item in the market. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, so it seems to be a global international issue. Um, Which is difficult to pinpoint
0: exactly
1: mm. right. we, we saw in the social media of people using plastics to produce rice
0: Right, I've heard about that.
1: We saw it and then we saw how the rice was produced and if you we are eating it You would know that you we are eating plastic hmm. Yes, so but it's it just like ordinary oh, no, rice. You you buy rice, you boil and then you eat it But this is not cultivated but like it's actually manufactured
0: wow.
1: yes and and they and they tell us we might have eaten this several times without knowing that we are eating plastics in africa wow. but again it is still difficult to say okay this person ate a particular rice that gave him or her stomach problem and that's why um either the person died or developed other they have you know complications we don't have that as yet in other words, we don't have, as of now, any health-related okay. diseases, any health issue that is connected to to, uh, okay. to food.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's bad.
1: It could come up. Maybe it's still accumulating. Mm. The health implications is accumulating. Because if you eat certain things, you may not have the results at once. But when the whatever it is in the food that we eat, which is not good, accumulates, then the time comes that they not start having a particular disease, and then when the health officers investigate, they will now see that this is the end result of something that has been eaten over the past number of years.
0: But is the infrastructure there for there to be that type of accountability for the importation of trade goods to see if it has any health implications on... We the have the food
1: disease. and that's what We have the Afghanistan, that authority that is supposed to um uh, be sure that everything that comes in food drugs are uh, all of, but
0: do they because
1: they have coke here all all are all of a high standard that is the authority Ghana, uh, that g s a okay. but the standard is there as to whether um these um things that get to the country, whether they are food staff or they are Medicine if you like, or the are uh, drinks for instance. Because we also hear about things that come in us, uh, some things and some of the chemicals they use are mm. dangerous to our health and yes. we have pictures of in social media where people are supposed to have died upon taking a particular thing and there's a warning wow. don't don't take this particular thing or that thing. But so we have the standards authority there but things get through and uh, sure and so basically yeah that's it
0: okay well let's try to get on a much lighter topic on some projects that you're working on currently regarding sociology
1: mm-hmm.
0: um yeah can you share
1: sure okay myself i'm trying to um expand my studies on fancy in africa to include Um, the emergence of chieftaincy in urban um, Africa. The expectation was that urbanization and modernization would do away with uh, traditional authorities. But um, um, urbanization comes with migration and migrants come with their traditional values and customs and uh, and culture. Part of the culture of the immigrants um, has been to ensure that the kind of leadership they have in their places of origin is replicated in their places of destination. So you have people who come to Ghana's urban spaces from neighboring West African countries um, trying to mimic the culture of their places of origin. You have people that come from the northern parts of the country another parts of the country into the urban aqua for instance, also trying to, um, if you like, um, demonstrate their cultural practices involving how they um, choose leadership or how they choose traditional um, leaders and the procedure of choosing them and the procedure of installing them um, to become such traditional leaders. Across the world, um, the idea of chiefs and kings appears to be diminishing, and their importance also um, basically has been uh, overwhelmed by uh, modern democratic institutions, and therefore the trend in the 1950s and 60s was to have a continuous modernization that will see to the Diminishing in importance of these traditional um, authorities as it had happened across the globe. However, in Africa and uh, Ghana in particular, we now have the traditional institutions now becoming more and more powerful and being sought after by politicians in terms of uh, uh, campaigning for votes, in terms of uh, how to mobilize the people for development projects, in terms of how to ensure governance and collaboration with the chiefs but you also find um that uh, such uh, institutions of chieftains which are traditional in nature um is able to coexist with modern um state institutions in terms in terms of hybridization this hybrid um forms of governance forms of administration um appears not only in the various regions in the country but now the various people who have come to the urban settings and have also developed chieftaincy are trying to make um, efforts as to how they can still in the urban um, center or in the urban settings assist you know once in a while in terms of local governance in terms of uh, administration in terms of ensuring peace amongst, amongst their people and the state relies upon such um, leadership, such leadership of the migrant communities when it comes to ensuring peace, when it comes to sending information, information, information to, um, to um, uh, people of migrant um, nature. So that's what I'm trying to do yeah, on, on, on the broader um, perspective.
0: So what made you interested in this topic? I know you're from the northern region. Is it because you came from the northern region and mimicked your culture here in Accra? Or tell us a little bit more as to
1: the why. Well, it is, it's, um, first of all, it is intriguing because um, you expect that in, in sociology, uh, change uh, basically is about moving from the traditional mode of doing things, moving from the um, um, society in this um, formative years, society then changes to a kind of um, stage where um, it assumes a different character, a different dimension, and that dimension gives it a new name, a name that lifts off traditionalism and takes off modernity, and the ways of doing things, in the, in, in, in the first society would have changed as it is supposed to have moved or transformed into um, a different, newer society. And the expectation was that this would be in a linear continuum, that it changes in a line from one stage to the other, and the stages are going to less and less of traditional as the changes um, occurs. So to have the urban center of Africa, Ghana, still accepting traditionalism is quite unique. It means that we have, as sociologists have to revise our theories, we have to revise our concepts, that the initial notion of social change of society changing from being traditional to being modern May not happen as we expected that we that so what was interesting was the fact that the migrants carried their institutions into the urban settings and they didn't just carry it in their minds they tried to physically institutionalize the culture and by doing so it is not just um it is not just a matter of symbols, it is also a matter of significance
0: mm-hmm. that
1: the people attach so much significance to their institution that they, they they actually are replicating it in the urban settings and trying to, and the state has also come to understand to accept it. In most of the attempts to um, bring tradition to modernity you find the state as a willing um, um, collaborator for instance Um, even during the colonialism, the colonial masters the British colonial administration actually played a role in ensuring that um, the migrants were able to um, set up their institutions of chieftaincy because they were also as um, you know British administration as it was, were interested in how could they administer, you know, such people who were not indigenous people of the land, where, 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 where the British were now um, reinforcing, if you like, colonial rule. For instance, in Ghana, or then Gold Coast, the British were more along the coast than the northern sector, so, but you had northernness in, along the coast you had no in Aqua. So we have chiefs who were indigenous in Akwa for the gang people, for instance. So if you have a non akwa people, non ga people, what kind of system are you going to use in order to govern such people as, as, as far as you know, uh, your laws are concerned? So the guards used their laws to govern their guns. The British governed the guards through the guards, chiefs for instance, but the migrants were basically also there who, the British were wondering how they could basically also govern them because they couldn't be governed through the cultures of the different people, the guard people. So the idea of having their own leader who would govern them, listen to them, who could sit as uh, an arbiter if they had uh, cases, disputes. That was something that the politicians actually welcomed and therefore they they took part in promoting the emergence and the the creation, if you like, uh, chiefs or leaders who would now be leaders for the migrant communities. And who the British can govern the migrants, you know, to get the same as indirect rule, where you have uh, the British govern people to their chiefs. So, so right from colonialism, the British also played a very important part in creating uh, or in assisting to create these traditional chiefs within migrant communities. And that has continued till today, that most often the state supports the migrants when they intend to establish a chief amongst um, themselves.
0: That's, a, that's an interesting concept. So how, do, how does the African mind separate the influence of colonialism on chieftaincy? How do, you, how do you get back and resort back to the traditional chieftaincy? And what does that even look like? And is that even possible in the 21st century?
1: The African chief was always there. Colonialism only came to enhance um chieftaincy for its own um, for its own sake. And um, and after independence, depending upon the country that gained independence, chieftaincy was either more enhanced or chieftaincy was uh, if if you like, relegated to the background, either relegated by the the government, the party in power, or by, yes, more or less the party in power. So, the party could say, well, we believe in chieftaincy, we believe in traditional governance, therefore we maintain chieftaincy as part of the entire governance system. Or a government can say, no, we don't think chieftaincy is part of modern the governance and therefore we are going to relegate to the background. So in Tanzania, for instance, chieftaincy was basically abolished. Hmm. In some African countries upon independence, chieftaincy was basically abolished. In other countries like South Africa, Botswana, Nigeria, and Ghana, chieftaincy was given a kind of it was accommodated in the new constitution of independent new independence Africa whereby um, they created uh, a kind of either um, a house of chiefs for instance or the kind of upper part upper upper house of the legislative assembly which in which um, you have the elected assembly for the country and also an assembly that was made up of uh, traditional leaders who were also consulted whenever laws that border on tradition, family and other um, issues were concerned. So different countries accommodated chieftaincy at different levels, I mean, upon independence. Mm-hmm. And the British or, or the colonial masters, no matter how they handle chieftaincy upon independence, the, the the, the, the what happened after depended more on the new government of the country.
0: Okay wow. That's really interesting and I have talked to other intellectuals that's interested in actually re-implementing the sovereignty of chieftaincy in the current Ghanaian government. So that seems like it would be giving the power back to the people in some respects.
1: The power of chieftaincy um, it's not for the people.
0: It's
1: not? No. The people don't determine who a chief is. Hmm. No. So, um, if you um, enhance chieftaincy as a government or as a state, it is not to give power back to the people, but it is to um, allow chieftaincy to operate without much interference from the state because we have instances where the state takes active part in, the, in to, to, to ensure who, who becomes a chief in, uh, in, in, in which kingdom or in which chiefdom so I think to give power back to the people when it comes to that aspect is when the state stops to interfere in determining who becomes a chief in um. a particular community however the people in any community do not have the natural power to determine who becomes a chief um it is basically about the family you're coming from mm-hmm. it's a line it's a gate and uh, because your father was a chief and you are a part of the royal family or your uncle was once chief, therefore you could also become a chief and it doesn't matter if the people um uh, the people voted you or not however I must say that in some instances there is a kind of um a mechanism which allows for consultation amongst certain groups of people within the community so we have the kingmakers Mm-hmm. who can say between these two people of the ruling family, we think this particular person is more qualified because he has a good attitude, because he has a good human relations, because he has good manners uh, and other considerations. Uh, he's respectful to the customs um, and all that. Even though up, after... Um, In the course of the installation of the chief, the chief is advised on what to do, what not to do as a chief. But before even the chief is chosen, they would have considered certain aspects of the chief and all that before they give the note. So you have a kind of elders who consult amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. You have the queen mother, or you have the youth who may also be consulted but in most, and this is about southern Ghana, in most part of northern Ghana, the youth have no any control over who becomes a chief, except the council of elders. They would advise the chief that amongst the young princes of this um, family, the vacant position can best be filled by um, if you look at A, B, C, D, or if you consider these two or three people, they'll tell you, or they can consult among themselves and decide who is the best person to occupy the vacant uh, position. And when that is decided, and they don't decide upon the upon consulting the people, no, they don't consult them to find out who do you think you like for us to go and choose as your um, your your chief. They don't. They are not like just college, no, they are just part of the Royal Council of Elders who decide who the chief is without consulting the people. They don't have to consult the people before they decide that. So um, the, the, um, the, the, the power of the people is limited to voting their um, public offices, mm-hmm. like the president and his vice president. Member of Parliament or a local assembly person, the chief is not electable. Oh.
0: Yeah. So closing out, what would you think the solutions to save the future of Ghana would be, if you?
1: To save Ghana from from what? If <laughs> I, mean, I just,
0: From the current positions that it's in, to give. The, to give the advancement of the people again, the liberation of the people
1: again, what, what do you think the solutions are? The solution is economic liberation. Um, if you ask me about, um, I think there are more Ghanaians who are in economic bondage than the political bondage. There are a lot of people who are constrained in what they do because of the economy. So um, we have freedom and justice as our motto, Ghana. So we are free, but how justly is the economy economy managed to the extent that the average Ghanaian has his due, his share of the national cake. So the justice, the liberation, should be more in the the economy, in a way that it is not left in the hands of few people who um, don't seem to understand that others are suffering, but it is managed in a way that um, majority of the average Ghanaian can feel that yes, he or she is basically um, having A share of national cake when that doesn't happen people don't seem to love the state
0: Mm.
1: yes the state now appears to be um, far from the individual and there's no sense of nationalism there's no sense of belongingness to the Ghanaian state or the African state for that matter there's no sense of um, yes sense of To love your state because when people have that sense of love for the state they respect the state they give the state dignity they don't corrupt the state even if they have the opportunity they will not engage in corruption but when you think that the state is an alien entity and you only see the state as an opportunity to an end then um, becomes a problem and then the level of the level at which people now engage the state is like use the state and make a means out of the state and um, the state is now um, seen as uh, if you like um, food of any kind You get a state you get food and so, how about those who don't get the state? So, they are going to get hung, hungry, and, uh, and those who get the state, they are going to uh, fill their bellies and, and even get more equipped for, for the future. So, and the perception of those who don't get the state is that those who have gotten the state are those who are able to, you know get A, B, C, D, have a good life and, and live in very good conditions, and those who don't get a state are also hoping to get a state one day, so when they happen to, to be engaged by the state, it's not about how to work for the development of the country, it's about how much can they also get out of the state, mm-hmm. knowing that it is temporary and the time will come when they will be no more uh, custodians of, of, of the state
0: well hopefully together we're able to rebuild and engage in communal economics to reach economic liberation thank you for tuning in to the more podcast and i appreciate you for speaking today thank you my pleasure